We understand certain Christian duties that we need to fulfill. We need to pray. We need to read our Bible. We need to resist sin. We need to give. We need to serve. But it's all become very much about doing and performing. And not a whole lot, simply about following the Savior day by day. Living in His presence. Walking with Him. Welcome to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. I'm Steve Hiller. And uh, Jonathan, as we hear you talk about following the Savior day by day, living in His presence, some of us may think it's exactly what we heard you say a moment ago. It is the resisting of sin. It is giving. It is serving. But it sounds like you're saying, well, yeah, it's that, but it's, it's more than that. Yeah, I think that's right, Steve. You know, the default mode of the human heart is to think in religious terms, I think, when we consider God, to think about what we will do for him, to please him. But the, the Christian faith doesn't start there. It starts with a vital relationship with the Father through the Son, made possible because of the work of Jesus at Calvary. And, and it's that vital relationship and that newness and that freshness that Jesus wants to drive home in this passage. Yes, you know, Jesus will call us to follow him and serve him and to, and to give and to be generous to his people and, and all the rest of it. But at the heart of it is not religious duty, but a vital relationship and a joyful one. So good to know that uh, it's not just ticking the boxes we uh, follow Jesus out of delight, not mm. just out of duty. And we're going to continue to look at that today from Matthew chapter 9. Grab a Bible, join us there as we continue the call of the kingdom. Here is Jonathan. The great evangelist Billy Graham in his evangelistic campaigns as he issued that offer of salvation, he always had the huge crowd sing the same song of response. Many will know it by heart. I had its words just going through my head as I spent time in this passage this week. Just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am, and waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blot, to thee whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am, though tossed about with many a conflict, many a doubt, fightings and fears within, without, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am, poor, wretched, blind, Sight, riches, healing of the mind, yea, all I need in thee to find, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am, thou wilt receive, wilt welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve, because thy promise I believe, O Lamb of God, I come. It's a wonderful model of response. It sums up so well all the layers of feeling and the processes of thought that the sinner has in coming to the Savior. And it helps give words and articulation to those feelings of the heart, the feelings of the heart that are there in any person who is truly prepared to respond to Jesus. And the point is, of course, that we come to Jesus simply as we are. All of us here who have come to him, that is how we came to him. 
And if you today are holding back from coming to Jesus, from answering his call to follow, let me urge you, let me invite you, come to him just as you are. In fact, if you today are feeling like you're just not good enough for Christ, if you feel I'm too much of a sinner for him, well, that is actually the very qualification he requires. It means you are the very kind of person he came to call and came to save. Many of us have, of course, come to him and are walking with him. But our problem and our challenge today, it is rather different. Having come to him as sinners in need of a savior, months and years and perhaps even decades down the line, we've actually started to forget how it was that we came to him all those years ago. We've forgotten the basis upon which we stand. Now, some years on, perhaps having been changed, having been delivered from some sin in our lives, perhaps the danger is that we've come to look on ourselves rather as these Pharisees looked upon themselves. We're drifting into a kind of religious smugness that quietly and unspokenly assumes that we're somehow more worthy than other people of the mercy and the grace of God, somehow more deserving of His favor than the really outrageous sinners are. And we forget that we first met Jesus, not as religious people with something to offer him, but as sinners desperately in need of a savior. Who does Jesus call? He calls not the righteous, but sinners. Next, what does Jesus call us to? He calls us to relationship and not religion. I don't know about you, but when I get talking to people and they find out I'm a Christian or they find out what line of work I'm in, they'll sometimes let slip into the conversation, even a little apologetically, oh, oh we're not religious. I, I'm afraid I'm not a very religious person. And when they say that, I kind of want to say to them, well, that makes two of us. I mean, I'm not very religious myself. In fact, I'm not a great fan of religion per se. Now, of course, there is a sense in which Christianity is rightly understood to be a religion. I get that. I understand that. But I don't think that Jesus would be very quick to accept the label of religion for his church or for his kingdom. In coming to Christ, we are not signing up for a religion, for a system of right and ritual and rule. Our commitment to Christ is different. And Jesus makes that very clear right from the start. There was plenty of religion around in his day, plenty of ritual, plenty of rules, plenty of legalism. But when Jesus called people to himself, when he called Matthew to himself, he didn't ask them to sign up to any of those things. His basic call is really quite different. Just notice again the call to Matthew, middle of verse 9. Follow me. That's it. That's all he says. Follow me. And Matthew does that very thing. Something timelessly wonderful about going on a walk with others, with friends, with family, with a loved one. We have some family visiting us at the minute from the UK and we went over to Gatineau Park the other day and did that walk around Pink Lake. Maybe you've done that one. It's very pretty. There's hardly a better way of spending good time with others than going for a walk together. One leads, others follow there's conversation, there's progress, there's time, there's meltdowns with the kids, memories made along the way, friendships grow, relationships deepen. 
One of the most common ways that the Gospels picture the relationship between Jesus and his disciples is simply to speak of them following him, walking with him, journeying with him wherever he goes. It's a lovely picture. And it sums up so well the core reality of the Christian life. When we heed the call to turn to Christ, to turn from sin, to belong to Christ, what we do is not sign up for a religious order or for a set of rituals or ceremonial duties or legal observances. We simply commit to walking with Jesus day by day and following him wherever he may lead. It is a relationship, not a religion. I know there are many here, many in our church family, who grew up in ritualistic forms of religion and then came to know Christ personally at a later stage. And when that happened, it was a revolution. It was eye-opening. It was a great discovery. It was a complete change for you. Many in this room have that story. But for some here, I just wonder whether that revolution has yet to take place in your life and in your hearts. I wonder if for some, even as we begin to think about these things and look at these verses, you're already wondering, do I have that relationship with Jesus? Or do I have something else? A ritualism, a religion, but something short of true Christianity. Well, let me invite you just to hold that thought and to be chewing it over for a minute or two here because it's significant and I want to come back to it. Once Jesus has made it clear to the Pharisees that the call to follow is a call for sinners, then another group come up to him with another question and another challenge, verse 14. Now it's not the Pharisees asking or challenging. Now the question comes from the disciples of John. You'll remember that John the Baptist had this very special and very privileged ministry of announcing the arrival of God's Messiah. We're told that he preached a baptism of repentance, but he didn't yet have the full gospel to proclaim. That would come with Jesus. So the disciples of John, these were Israelites who believed that Jesus was the Messiah, who saw that repentance was needed, who saw that sin was a problem. These were people who came as sinners seeking repentance. That's a good step beyond where the Pharisees were, but they didn't yet know what it meant to follow Jesus what it would look like to live in relationship with him. That's their need, and that's the gap in their understanding. And so here's their question, verse 14. How is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now that is a fair question. Fasting was an important part of life under the Old Covenant. It was a key part of signaling mourning over sin. That's why the question comes up in verse 14 after verse 13. Jesus is just in saying he's all about calling sinners. And so now these disciples ask, if that's your focus, calling sinners to repentance and so on, if that's your focus, why are you not into fasting? It's a reasonable question. And Jesus takes time to answer it. And he does it in two parts. The first part of his answer comes in verse 15. Jesus answered, how can guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast. I guess there are those occasions when we might mourn when a person arrives and rejoice when they leave. Perhaps you sometimes have visitors like that. You stand on your driveway on departure day holding streamers and confetti behind your back, waiting for them just to get round that corner, and when they're out of sight, it is then party time. 
But if it's someone you actually want to see, the party, the celebration, it takes place when they come and the mourning happens when they're gone. And Jesus's point is there's a day coming when I'll be taken away from you. But the Savior is here. The Savior, he's with his people. He's come to offer the forgiveness of sins. Now is the time to rejoice. You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths, and we're going to pause the message right there, but don't worry, we're going to get back to this teaching from Matthew chapter 9 in just a moment. You know, maybe you recently discovered Encounter the Truth. You want to find out a little bit more about the ministry or about Jonathan. You can always do that by visiting our website. It's EncounterTheTruth.org. And while you're there, I do hope you'll consider giving a gift. We're listener-supported, and that's exactly what it sounds like. We depend on your generosity to keep Jonathan's teaching on this station. So if you're benefiting from listening, would you give a gift of support today? And as you do, we're going to say thank you by sending you a book called Checkbook of the Bank of Faith. It's a book of devotional writings from C.H. Spurgeon, a great Victorian preacher. In fact, he was known as the Prince of Preachers, and his sermons drew thousands to his church. But he also wrote encouraging believers to enter into the full provision that their relationship with Jesus entitled them to, and explained why we have to take the promises of Scripture to God in prayer and in faith, anticipating that God will honor what he said. Again, we'd love to send you this book of devotional writings from C.H. Spurgeon for your gift of any amount to the ministry. You can give online by coming to EncounterTheTruth.org, or you can call us at 833-99-TRUTH. Again, our website is EncounterTheTruth.org, And our phone number is 833-998-7884. Well, let's get back to the message. Again, it's entitled The Call of the Kingdom. Once again, here's Jonathan. It's significant that Jesus identifies himself as the bridegroom of the people of God here in verse 15. At various points in the Old Testament, we find the idea that God is married to his people Israel, committed to them in the deepest covenant relationship And now that Jesus says, as as the Lord who has come to save his people, he says, he is the bridegroom who has come for his bride. And of course, the New Testament will later speak of the church as the bride of Christ quite explicitly. Jesus has come to invite us into the deepest relationship with himself. That's the dynamic here. That's the reality. Well, that's the first part of Jesus' answer. The next part comes in verse 16. And it's made up of a couple of pictures. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Both these pictures are really about the absurdity and the folly of trying to mix new and old. With the garment, you've got an old, worn, shrunken pair of jeans. They get a rip on the knee and you sew on a patch of new cloth, brighter in color, fresh and unshrunken. After a couple of washes, the patch begins to shrink. And as the shrinking new cloth pulls on the already shrunken old cloth, both tear and the jeans are officially ruined. Time for retirement, no possibility of repair again. In Jesus' day, wine was stored in leather containers in skins. As the wine would ferment, the fresh new skins would kind of stretch and give. 
But if you try that trick with old skins, putting new wine into them, the old skins, they won't give in the same way. They'll be ruined, even torn, and the wine will be wasted. Mixing new and old, forcing the new into the old or forcing the new onto the old, it's not advisable. It doesn't work. You shouldn't try. Now, both the Pharisees and the disciples of John, in their own distinctive ways, were basically asking this. Why isn't Jesus doing things the way they had been done before? Why isn't he believing and acting and teaching according to the customs of Judaism, according to the norms of their religion? Jesus' reply is really this. God is doing a new thing here. It's the fulfillment of the old, to be sure. There is continuity, of course, but this is fresh, this is new, this is exciting, and you will ruin everything if you try and force what I bring and what I do into the confines of traditional religion. This is something else. Now, when we think about how God's people related to God under the old covenant when we think about the priests who were the intermediaries between God and his people, when we think about the temple and the sacrifices, about the purity laws and about the ceremonies, when we think about all that, we realize it was, of course, religious. It was ritualistic and it was so by God's design. But Jesus is saying that now something new has come. The bridegroom has arrived. He's going to leave his spirit to dwell in our hearts, and through him we have direct access to the Father. It is a relationship in a new and fresh and deeper way, and we mustn't try and force it into the structures and confines of religion. The other evening I was rushing out of the door at home. I was late taking one of the kids to something, and I I was pressed for time. A guy appeared on the doorstep, a, a salesperson, trying to sign us up for a new internet and phone package. I didn't want to be rude, but I really just didn't have time to talk to him. He gave me the 20-second sales pitch, and actually it sounded great. He did it very well. Uh, And I said, well, look, I'm happy to talk, but it'll need to be another time. And I I, I made a mental note to look up this deal online. When he came back a couple of days later with his colleague, I'd done my research, and I'd actually already decided this is a good deal. I am going to sign up for it. I told them as much when I opened the door, and I was ready just to sign my name and hand over my credit card. I thought they'd be glad to take that and just run to the next sale. But they surprised me a little by asking if they could come in and sit down with me and talk it through a little bit. So I I let them in, and we sat down in the living room. They ended up staying quite a while. Gemma was kind of watching the clock. We had to put the kids to bed, and they were just staying and staying. They weren't seeming to try and sell me more stuff, but they were just talking me through the package and then getting things properly arranged. We actually had quite a nice chat. Now, I thought they wanted to do a quick hit and run. Actually, they wanted a more substantial engagement. I don't think they were wanting to be my best friends or anything. I'm not hanging on waiting for the phone call and the barbecue invitation. But I was kind of impressed by their approach. I think it's all too possible to think and to believe that Jesus wants us to sign up for something on the doorstep. A bit of financial giving, a bit of church attendance, a bit of being upright and good. But Jesus doesn't want our religion. He's not interested in that. He wants to come into our home and into our life. He wants us to walk with him and he wants to walk with us. He wants us to know him as the bridegroom and to be part of his bride, the church. And maybe that's something that you've 
never really seen or understood before, that dynamic is fresh to you. Perhaps you actually consider yourself a Christian believer here this morning. Perhaps you've been in churches, even this church, for quite a long time. But this dynamic, it's never really been clear. You've been thinking that Jesus wanted religious duty from you. But you've never seen that Jesus wants you simply to follow him, to walk with him day by day, to listen to his voice through his word, to speak to him in prayer. He wants to live within you by his spirit. Now, now that's what Jesus calls us to. That's what he desires. And maybe for some here today, today is the day that you truly, for the first time, answer that call to follow Jesus and to begin that relationship with him. I trust that most of us who are regular here at church understand the reality of that relationship, of what it means to know Jesus and to follow him. But I would not be at all surprised if for quite a number of us here, the freshness and the joy of this relationship, it's faded just a little. We're experiencing and we are living out day by day something diminished, something less than the reality that we're considering here. The relationship is there, but it's faded and it's gone cool. It's gone a little stale. And actually, as we reflect upon our Christian life, it looks quite a lot more like religion than it did at first. We understand certain Christian duties that we need to fulfill. We need to pray. We need to read our Bible. We need to resist sin. We need to give. We need to serve. But it's all become very much about doing and performing. And not a whole lot simply about following the Savior day by day living in his presence, walking with him. And maybe the Lord's invitation and the Lord's challenge for you today is simply to become reacquainted with the Lord Jesus, to remember again what it looks like to live in relationship with him, to follow him, to rejoice again in the freedom of that, to rest again in the security of it. This truth that Christianity is a relationship rather than simply a religion, it's always been a beautiful and a liberating truth. But I somehow think that it has an added wonder and an added attractiveness in our day and our age. We live in a world where there is this great pretense of relational interconnectedness all the time through uh, social media and through technology. We're endlessly texting and emailing and messaging, endlessly gathering so-called friends on Facebook. But I wonder if we're not actually some of the most isolated and lonely people the world has ever known. We have plenty of superficial interaction. We spend far too much time worrying about the, the fact that we're missing out on the attention and the interaction all, that all the other people around us seem to be having and seem to be enjoying. And I wonder if our real relationships are more shallow because of it and our true friendships rarer. It's no secret that vast numbers of people in our society feel hopelessly isolated and terribly alone. And so to an isolated and a lonely society, Jesus issues this wonderful invitation, beautiful in its simplicity, rich in its significance. Follow me. Go with me where I go. And I will go with you.
call for sinners, not the righteous. A call to relationship and not religion. What a great reminder today here in Encounter the Truth that Jesus calls us to a relationship with him. Not a religion, but to know him personally. I hope that you do know him. But maybe as you've been listening to Jonathan's teaching today, you realize that you don't know Jesus in quite the way that Jonathan's been talking about. Well, I do hope you'll contact us here at Encounter the Truth. We'd love to uh, talk with you about what it means to begin a relationship with Jesus. You can reach us through the website, EncounterTheTruth.org, and click on the contact link. Or you can also give us a call. Our toll-free number is 833-99-TRUTH. That's 833-998-7884. I also hope you'll continue to listen to this broadcast. Of course, you can tune into this radio station and listen that way, but you can also connect with us and listen to the program by visiting our website. It's EncounterTheTruth.org. Well, for Jonathan and for our producer, Mark Breda, I'm Steve Hiller. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you'll join us next time.